Hello, my name is Xu Hanqing. I'm a member of International Law Commission. Currently, I'm Chinese ambassador to ASEAN, legal counsel of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China. The topic of my lecture today is transboundary damage in international law. At the outset, I wish to express my sincere appreciation to the UN Audio Video Library of International Law for its efforts in disseminating international law. And I'm sure this effort will be very helpful for the developing countries. Uh, the question of transboundary damage in international law is not new legal issue in international relations. Actually, in the 1920s and 30s, already there are cases between states over environmental damage. For instance, a trail smelter case that a smelter in the territory of Canada caused damage in the territory of the United States. And for years, two countries have been negotiating over the settlement of the damage. And finally, the two sides decided to submit a dispute to arbitration. And in the arbitration, the court decides that no country should have the right to use or permit the use of its territory in such manner as to cause injury to the properties or persons when the case of a serious consequence and injury is established by clear and convincing evidence. So this is a landmark case in international law. However, transboundary damage in international law has caused increasing attention among states. The reason for this primarily threefold. The first factor is with industrialization and urbanization, we see the scale of environmental damage between states actually has greatly increased. We know such accidents like oil spill. For instance, recently the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. We know nuclear disasters like Chernobyl incident. And so these kind of accidents of environmental damage cause great concern among states. And at international level, there's been increasing call for international regulation, especially for regulations on international liability to pay compensation. This is the first factor. Secondly, with the advancement of science technology, a lot of scientific activities will bring in great benefits to mankind, also bear greater potential of risk for transboundary damage. For instance, outer space activities. And this also add concern, add to concern that we should regulate this kind of activities. The third factor is the growing awareness, public awareness of international of 
environmental protection. And since the first World Conference on Environment in 1972 at Stockholm to the second World Conference at Rio on Environment and Development, the international community and the general public are more and more conscious of environmental protection. So for transboundary damage, it being a great concern among states. So recently noticeable that International Court of Justice has two important decisions relating to international environmental law. One is the Gabčivo Najmaras project case between Hungary and Slovakia over water dam projects on the Danube. Second is the recent decision on the uh, Uruguay River to uh, pop mills case that between Argentina and Uruguay. So th these cases once again demonstrate international concern over environmental damage issues. And of course, they also show that in addressing transboundary damage, there are many factors we should take into consideration. Now, when we talk about transboundary damage, we often refer to those kind of situations where one activity carried out in the territory of one country causes serious significant damage to persons, properties, and environment in the territory of another country. And these activities, by their own nature, they are useful, essential, desirable, and irreplaceable activities. And they are useful for social economic development. So they are not prohibited either by national law or by international law. And that's the beneficial side of these activities. But on the other hand, because of the nature, intrinsic nature, they also bear the risk of causing serious transboundary damage to other countries. So at international level, this issue must be addressed. This is their first feature. Secondly, when we talk about transboundary damage cases, it's very difficult to pin down the parties in a general term. We have to see specific context, specific activity we are concerned with. Some of the activities are carried out by states, for instance, outer space activity. Some of the activities are carried out by industrial operators, for instance, nuclear energy activities. And some commercial activities like ocean-going shipping of oil and petroleum, and move international movement and disposal of toxical and uh, hazardous substances, chemical stuff. And so it's very difficult to give a sweeping judgment as who should be 
uh, asked to bear the responsibility. This is the first complicated factor. Secondly, we know when we talk about international liability or international responsibility, we often compare it to national laws. And at the national law, we know there are different categories of liability, civil liability. For instance, fault liability, strict liability, and sometimes we call it absolute liability. They are quite different in terms of their meaning, scope, and specificities. So at the international level, when we talk about liability, what kind of standards and what kind of liabilities we want to talk about. So it's very, from the beginning, this is very controversial concept. And the third complicated factor is, in an international context, when a transboundary damage occurs, the victims could, from, could be from different countries. If the damage occurred in one country, and these victims have to find access to legal redress, to have legal recourse for compensation. Oftentimes, because between different countries, it's very hard for victims to find proper jurisdiction and applicable law. And once, even if they have judgment, they don't know where to enforce them. So these kind of complicated procedures matters in reality often prevent the innocent victims to get proper, a prompt and adequate compensation. And the fourth complicated factor is damage to environment per se. We know for a long time damage to environment was not calculated or considered as compensable damage. And in recent international practice, the environmental damage have been considered as compensable damage. So the uh, liable party has to pay compensation not only to loss of life, personal injury, properties, as well as to environmental damage. But then how you calculate it? To what extent environmental damage should be paid? And the last factor is the responsibility of states. To what extent the state of origin of the activity should be held liable and responsible at international level? These hard questions have to be answered in international law. For a long time, international community actually have been trying to solve these issues. And they call it the issue of international liability for risk. So far, we know some specific regimes have been established to address international transboundary damage. And for instance, 
in the field of nuclear energy industry, in the outer space area, and in area of maritime sh uh, oil shipping and the seabed oil exploitation, and international movement of hazardous substances and dumping of hazardous waste. And these regimes actually by each of their feature set up compensation regime. They are quite different from each other, but they do bear some common features. And for instance, now I will address them one by one. For nuclear energy industry, in 1960, the OECD countries conclude Paris Convention for third-party liability in the field of nuclear energy. And in 1963, and an IAEA, the Vienna Convention on Civil Liability for Nuclear Damage was included. And these regimes, the liability was channeled to the nuclear, nuclear plant operator. In other words, the operator nuclear plant will be directly held liable if any accident occurs and damage caused. And this actually simplified complexity of multiple litigations. And under the regime, the operator will be held strictly liable for nuclear damage. But such liability is limited both in time and in amount. And under the regime that the operator is obliged to secure financial security for possible compensation. And also under the regime, international fund of compensation was established. This means once accident occurs, the operator will be in the position financially to pay large amount of compensation. This will assure not only the innocent victims will be compensated, the nuclear energy industry will also be secured to go on. And procedurally, the regime also ensure the juris proper jurisdiction, to which, in other words, which court, which country's court will have jurisdiction for cases relating to nuclear damage. And once the judgment is made, it will be recognized and enforced in the contracting party's cause. And then once compensation is made, the currency can be transferred out, the money can be transferred out of the country to the victims. So these arrangements actually assure that nuclear industry can develop 
and can get help through the regime. At the same time, the public security and the public safety will be guaranteed. And this is the one of the earliest models of international liability for possible nuclear damage. And of course, together with nuclear energy industry, other arrangements also be made regarding to nuclear ship and nuclear test at the state level. And I will skip over that today in this lecture. Uh, the same, same arrangement also being made with outer space activities. We know in the early stage, space launching parties are generally states. So under the 1972 uh, Convention on International Liability caused by space objects, that states directly bear international liability if space objects cause damage on the surface of Earth. And under the terms of the treaty, state undertakes absolute international liability. And oftentimes in scholarly writings, people say this is uh, uh, the strictest standards of liability. But if you compare the terms, you would see um, even if it's called absolute, it's quite, uh, it's not so different from strict liability and other regime. And there is very clear also that liability is a channel to one specific party. In this context, it's the state. And also state take strict but limited liability. And the relevant states will negotiate on the terms of compensation. So that's for the outer space activities. We are quite clear uh, how that regime being formulated. With maritime oil shipping and the seabed exploit oil uh, exploitation and production, um, there the liability was channeled not only to the ocean-going shipper, but also to the importer of oil and petroleum. Because these are the two direct involved actors benefited from the industry. And uh, if only the oil, uh, sea-going shipper undertakes the liability, it won't be fair for the industry. And the uh, shipper cannot really by itself um, undertake the responsibility. So under the terms of the international treaty arrangement that uh, uh, international liability for oil shipping also being made. And lastly, about international movement of hazardous and the toxical substances and the dumping. Uh, there are also conventional regime where that the uh, industry, relevant industry, undertake international liability. And at the same time, financial arrangements guaranteed are being made to ensure future possible compensation. So from these specific regimes, we can tell 
When we talk about international liability, the matter is not that simple. And you have to see the practical context of a particular activity to see how international liability can be assured. At the same time, the relevant activities can go on for the benefit of mankind, for the economic and the social development of the society. Under these regimes, oftentimes international scholars would like to draw the conclusion that once a hazardous activity is being carried out, we can claim on the basis of a general international law for imposing international liability on the operator. So for a long time, there have been discussions, research studies in this area. And oftentimes, the general claim would be made to the extent that whoever carried out such activity should bear international liability. But we know in practice, when you come to a specific case, it's very hard to do that. And then that's the effort of International Law Commission. Since 1978, International Law Commission decided to set up a separate topic item entitled International Liability for Injurious Consequences arising out of acts not prohibited by international law. It's a very long title, but in substance, it's just about international liability for transboundary damage. And for a long time, the International Law Commission considered the topic, but without much substantive results. And the difficulty, the difficulties the Law Commission encountered can be summarized in several points. First, when we consider transboundary damage cases, we often come across the question in regard to the relations between this topic and the state responsibility. Because we are talking about, when we talk about international liability, first we think of state responsibility. At that time, the Law Commission was also deliberating another separate topic called state responsibility. It was very clear under state responsibility, if you want to, under state responsibility rules, if you want to invoke respon uh, responsibility of a state, you have to fulfill two conditions. One, there must be a breach of international obligation on the part of the state. Second, the act which is considered as a breach of international obligation must be attributable to the state. In other words, must be considered 
as act of the state. But in international liability case, in other words, in the transboundary damage cases, oftentimes it's very hard to claim there is a breach of international obligation because the activities we are talking about are not prohibited by international law. They're just the normal industrial, agricultural, technological activities. They are normal production, and we have to have them in our daily life. But then when damage occurs, you have to prove there is a breach of international obligation on the part of the state. Then, if the victim cannot approve there is a wrong, there is a wrongful act on the part of the state, it cannot get compensation. It cannot invoke the responsibility of the state concern. This is the difficulty of this topic with state responsibility regime. Secondly, we know a lot of such activities, industrial, agriculture, technical, are not carried out by state per se, but by private actors. How can you attribute such activities to the state when, they are, when state is not direct operator? when the state is not in direct control of such activity. You cannot simply say, because these activities are conducted in your territory, so you are held, you should be held liable. We know in real life, in state practice, that's not the case. Oftentimes, we only see only one state themselves are direct operator direct indirect control of such activity, they will accept responsibility. So the third problem difficulty is the notion of fault. To what extent we can claim that when damage occurs, there is injury on the part of the victim state in the sense of international law. It's very difficult to link with the state responsibility regime. So International Law Commission, with all these concepts, felt very difficult to handle the question of international liability for risk. We call it transboundary damage as risk liability. So in 1992, the Commission decided to separate the topic in two parts. The first part will address the rules of prevention. Because if you do not address the rules of conduct 
it's very difficult subsequently to address rules of liability. So in 1992, the Commission decided to separate the topic of international liability for risk into two parts. One will first stress rules of prevention. From 1998 to 2001, the Commission successfully finished the consideration of this part of the topic and came out with 19 draft articles on the rules of prevention of transboundary damage. The name of these draft articles called Prevention of Transboundary Harm from Hazardous Activities. The hazardous activities actually are considered including two kinds of activities. One is those activities that very likely to give rise to serious damage with transboundary effects, like water projects. And when something happened with water dam that caused serious damage to the downstream state, like oil shipping, like the one we are currently uh, see that's in the Gulf of Mexico. Another type is called uh, ultra-hazardous activities, which are very unlikely happen, very unlikely to happen. But once, if indeed happens, it will cause disastrous, devastating damages. The example at hand is Chernobyl incident, nuclear disaster. So in short, these type of hazardous activities are considered as activities with a risk. So on the prevention rules, the draft articles propose a set of principles and set up draft rules for states to consider if they are to conduct activities with serious risk. In the draft articles, they set up a few general principles. One is principle of prevention. Second is principle of cooperation. Because in the final analysis, if we want to prevent transboundary damage, to prevent such a serious harm to another state, cooperation, prevention are the key for any successful efforts. So in the draft articles, the commission proposed that under these general principles, if a state is to carry out hazardous activity that may have potential transboundary effect, they should authorize, make authorization. In other words, they have to take the matter into their own hands before they authorize 
activity to go on. And for authorization, they have to first of all make assessment of risk. Assessment not only of the risk of the activity itself, but assessment on the environmental impact. When they take into consideration of all these factors and decided to, to give green light to such activity, they should also notify their neighbors that are very likely or potentially to be affected by such activity. And within six months, they should not give authorization because within six months, the state concerned is expected to give reply. And then they may enter into consultation and to discuss potential risk. If the country that might be affected or likely to be affected differ on the conclusion of the assessment, upon request, it may ask for further consultation and to find to in, in, with a view to finding a possible solution. Of course, in terms of assessment, there are certain criteria that parties concerned have to take in, into consideration. For, for instance, among the factors that the parties should keep balance of interests of all states concerned, they should consider the degree of risk together with the availability of means of preventing such harm and possibility to minimize the risk and the available means to repair such harm. This is the first factor. Secondly, they have to assess the importance of the activity to the country of origin and whether they have any potential alternative means. If you say, ask the country, don't do this, don't carry out activity. But the country of origin would ask, what can I do? This is so essential for my country's economic and social development. Our people need it. What can we do? So it's not simply just turn a blind eye to the interests of the country of origin. But both sides have to show good faith and to show the spirit of cooperation. And the, then they have to assess the risk of the harm, potential harm to the environment and possible available means that can prevent such harm and risk and the possible means to restore the environment if such damage does occur. And then, of course, finally, the standard of prevention. And oftentimes, the country of origin may claim, oh, we already take uh, preventive measures, but the standard was so low that country, neighboring countries may not agree with that. Then they have to 
look at regional standards, international standards, and to, to assess it with the best available and possible means. And then they have to consider the cost of prevention. So these factors or criteria are very specific. Even these draft articles are still just article, not yet uh, the hard law or hard rule on states. But when states carry out such activities, they can take them into consideration. And procedurally, when we talk about states concerned, have to notify each other. If damage occurred, they should timely notify the potential affected country to take preventive measures or to take uh, uh, mitigation measures. They should, uh, th these procedure measures are very, very important. And we know in uh, reality, oftentimes the country of origin for fear that uh, the, the uh, notice may give undue public panic. So, so they, they tend to hold information and then uh, the useful time for taking measures may be lost. So uh, in the draft, art, in the articles, it's laid uh, very clearly that country concern must give timely notice. However, even if when a country plans to carry out such a hazardous activity, considers there won't be any transboundary effects on other countries, decided to go ahead with the country. And if, if, even if there's no request from neighboring countries for information and data, the country which is about to carry out such activity nevertheless should take into consideration of such a risk. In other words, substantive international obligations will still hold on the country of origin. And of course, in exchange of information, it's also provided information should be available should be made available not only to the country concerned but also to the public and this is something in the environmental international environmental law field that is being uh, increasingly aware that it's very important to provide data information to the general public and of course in providing information those information concerning national security and commercial secrets are not supposed to disclose and the state concerned has right to withhold such information to either to the public or to the neighboring countries. And lastly, very important, that's the principle of non-discrimination. We know in the case of transboundary damage, uh, damage uh, situation, oftentimes because victims are foreign nationals or resident in a foreign territory, oftentimes they are treated differently in terms of access to legal re recourse 
and in terms of treatment of compensation, in terms of uh, uh, transfer of money once they get compensation. Compensation. So the principle of non-discrimination on the basis of nationality or residence or place have been stressed that when a when an injury occurs that the country concerned must observe the principle of non-discrimination so um, and uh, for the emergency situation the article also addressed that the country of origin should develop uh, contingency, contingency plans for responding to emergencies. And they are encouraged, where appropriate, to cooper cooperate with competent international organizations. And when accident emergency occurs, they are obliged to notify immediately of the countries concerned and relevant international organization. And these articles, um, of course, finally, the draft article also include the settlement of disputes. Because after all, when transboundary damage case occurs, it often demonstrated as a case of international dispute between states. So the procedure for settlement of dispute is uh, very important. And here, the article had very specific uh, procedure rules on the settlement of disputes. So when the Law Commission finished this part of the drafting exercises on prevention rules, it submitted them to the Sixth Committee in the General Assembly and with the recommendation that hopefully that these articles will be turned into an international convention. And this is a remarkable achievement, I must say, although at the moment, up to this moment, uh, these articles have not yet been codified as an international convention. But at least in terms of rules of conduct for prevention of transboundary harm, this is a step forward. The Law Commission, nevertheless, did not simply stop there. For the second part, it went on to work on the question of compensation, on liability, ru liability rules. After lengthy discussions, the Commission came to the conclusion, instead of drafting rules on international liability, they decided to adopt a series of principles on the allocation of loss. Because we know in reality, even if a state has undertaken all the preventive measures, transboundary damage nevertheless may occur. In that situation, victims should not be left alone to bear the loss, and environmental damage must be addressed. So the Commission decided to uh, set up a set of uh, principles as a guidance for states to follow. And in the exercise from 2003 to 2006, the Commission 
uh, came out with eight principles on the rules of allocation of loss. In the principle, it made very clear the purpose of the principle is to ensure prompt, adequate, and effective compensation to victims. And the second objective is to protect the environment. And as a recommendation, the principles suggest that states, when they carry out such hazardous activities, they should in advance set up compensation regime and to provide financial security and set up procedural rules to make sure that innocent victims can in due course get compensation. And of course, the, in the report, the commission recommend that for those hazardous activities or ultra-hazardous activities, in conducting such activities, state should set up compensation scheme in advance to pave the way for the future compensation claims. And I must say, LC's efforts International Commission's efforts are commendable. And although at this stage, these, draft, these articles and the principles are not considered as lex lata, but as lex or the lega forenda, they are very, uh, uh, I must say, um, very positive in promoting uh, international law in the field of environment and also for the conduct of state. Um, in short, transboundary damage in international law is an important area today, especially given the importance of environment and the principle of uh, uh, sustainable development has been generally recognized by states as the guiding principle for our social economic development. And of course, for states, we still have a long way to go to set up more regimes to guarantee while we're securing, we are securing our economic development, promoting our social advancement, we have to have uh, valid legal regimes to maintain a sound development, to maintain our development, uh, uh, environment for the benefit of our people, for the benefit of future generations. This is the course for today. Thank you for your attention.